Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Everything is Black and White podcast and it is the Christmas special of Gibbo's Corner. Now usually, John, in our previous Christmas specials, yeah. we've talked about Christmas and the winter period. I think last year was the best winter games and hopefully this episode will be as festive. There's going to be no snow, uh, unfortunately, but Santa has been very kind to us because he's delivered us a very special guest in indeed. Malcolm McDonald. Supermark, how are you doing? Good, thanks, Andrew. Yes, um, yeah, it's, it's a bit uncomfortable on reindeer, I have to say, <laughs> but, uh, but he got me here safely. <laughs> um, we're going to talk about your wonderful career at Newcastle United, one of the finest strikers fans got to see in black and white. And I just want to start, Malcolm, by asking you to sum up what Newcastle United means to you. Um, well... <laughs> Having had two first division clubs, um, Newcastle and then Arsenal, let me just go to Arsenal for a moment because Arsenal is the best run club, the best organised in the world. It is incredible the way in which it was all put together and how it functioned on a day-to-day basis. Newcastle was quite the opposite. But... The fans absolutely made St. James Park a total haven for football. Um, the atmosphere that they created was, was, was something to behold. Um, and opposing sides hated coming to St. James Park because of that atmosphere and, and the, the tension that it could cause for the away players. Um, and, and, and so in... In praising Newcastle United, what, I'm, what I would really be doing is praising the fans because they, they made the whole thing. And they still do, still do for heaven's sake. And, um, uh, uh, and the atmosphere that, that, that is created, even, even when times are, are hard and, and, and difficult, the fans still give their everything and have that belief in the players. And, and, it, it, uh, and it, it just... At Newcastle, just walking around um, the city, it was the warmth in which people would approach you and talk to you and and, and what have you. And it was, um, you 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 immediately become a part of the of the footballing society that exists in Newcastle, and it's a very rare thing. It, it you won't find it in most other towns and cities. And it's very interesting you mentioned the fans. We are recording this ahead of Christmas, obviously. Uh, we all took it into our Christmas dinners right about now. But at the time of recording, Newcastle are bottom of the Premier League. And yet there's this weird sense or this weird wave of optimism still around the fan base, which is amazing. I guess that just re-emphasises just how important the fans are, Malcolm. That's right. Um, they have a, a belief in the players, no matter how badly they're playing, no matter how the team appears uh, that uh, a lack of goals at one end and a, and a, and a crescendo of goals being scored against um, and, and and yet the fans they, they they're able to lift the whole situation um, and, uh, and and elevate it and yet it's a bit of a disaster as as we speak now and uh, all I can say is hopefully that uh, 
that actually on Christmas Day that uh, Newcastle are pulling away from the bottom, but somehow I doubt it. Yeah, fingers crossed. The situation looks a lot different from when we're recording today to when you're hearing this, hopefully on your iPads, on your iPhones, or whatever Santa brought you uh, last night. Uh, Gibbo, just remind us then of the situation that Malcolm was coming into when he signed for Newcastle United. Yeah, uh, we had probably our most successful manager in the history of Newcastle outside of uh, Stan Seymour, old Stan Seymour, who won the 50s side, in Joe Harvey. Certainly, if football is measured by trophies and what other yardstick is there, then the most successful of modern times has been Joe Harvey because while Kevin Keegan and Bobby Robson brought us the most wonderful, wonderful, exciting times, there wasn't any silverware. There was with uh, Harvey. Now, what Harvey was doing at that time, he built three Newcastle sides uh, in, what, something like 11 years? That's how good he was. He built the 65 side that took, won the second division championship and brought Newcastle out of the doldrums where they'd been and put them back at the top table. He then built the 1969 side that won the European Fairs Cup and then he built Malcolm's side which went to the FA Cup final in 74. So he built three success uh, different sides we had just come out of the 1969 team there was obviously an overlap of players like uh, Craig and Clark and Moncur etc who were still part a vital part of this new side but Wynn Davies who was you know how much we've always loved number nines adored number nine Wynn Davies was the guy that was wearing that shirt when we won the European Fairs Cup and then we brought in Malcolm. Now, the side was going to have to move on. If there was anything wrong with Wynn, it was that he didn't score enough goals. Uh, he made a lot for other people with his sheer presence mm. in the air. Um, terrified defenders, especially continental defenders, but he didn't score enough himself. Then we got this fella, um, and it was interesting. I mean, I remember at the time looking at Malcolm's record and having seen him play on uh, various occasions and his record of goals per game was superb and it has been the whole of his career but what we've got to remember is that this was a 21 year old guy that had never played in the top flight now you've and he's come to a club the size of Newcastle United you've got to have confidence and we were relying on the eye of Joe Harvey because he was the two great things with Joe is he could spot talent and his man management and we got the right guy. And were you aware of Malcolm's goal scoring exploits at Luton? Yeah, ab absolutely, totally. Um, the only thing was, can he transfer it to the top flight? Now, very quickly, having seen the lad arrive at Newcastle, uh, momentous day, drives up. Um, the boy always had style and he had style from day one because he arrived in a Rolls Royce uh, with what appeared to us to be a chauffeur. Malcolm will tell the story, he wasn't quite that, but it appeared that way. Made a dramatic entrance, door open, and out walks this guy up the stairs with a swagger that I thought I've signed John Wayne or I've signed the centre forward. Uh, and I thought, who's this cocky cockney? that we've got here, he better be able to live up to the, the style he's got, this fellow and brother, did he? First home game, Liverpool, hat-trick, um, and it, it, goals just continued from there on in for the whole of the, what, five years he was here? 
Mm. Were you aware, Malcolm, of the history of that number nine shirt and the great strikers you were following? Yes. Um, <clears throat> on, the, um, on the first day that I came to St James Park, it was the Monday after the cup final. Um, uh, Joe signed me very, very early, um, immediately following the end of the season. I, um, on, the, on the Wednesday before the cup final, I played my last game for Luton, as it so turned out. And, um, <coughs> and on the Friday, um, Newcastle moved for me. And, uh, and the deal was done Friday morning. Um, and so uh, I, uh, I, I had a, a fair old inkling um, of what life was going to be, the the the, um, the thing I did um, struggle with was um, was getting to understand the accents, <laughs> um, and uh, I remember soon after signing, going um, to do a bit of a talking at, um, at a, a social club near Ashington, and I thought I'd gone to Mars. <laughs> I really yes. did. <laughs> well, I couldn't understand a single word. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Um, but <laughs> but that's all part of the fun, I think, of, of it. Um, and and it was interesting in the Newcastle dressing room that it was Scottish accents, Irish accents, um, and then of course Geordie accents. And I was the odd one out in all of that. Uh, and people even now say to me, all these decades later, uh, well, you, you've never picked up the accent, have you? And I'm, no, I haven't. Um, um, but uh, I do understand it now. <laughs> Just tell our listeners then about that meeting with Joe Harvey in which you eventually moved to Newcastle United. Well, um, I have to take it back to about... Uh, well, to when I first joined Luton Town, and I had um, I just had a, a very few league games in which I scored five goals for Fulham, and <coughs> fell out with the senior players. And uh, Bobby Robson was the manager who had signed me. He was sacked, and so it was all a, a, um, a lot of turmoil going on at Fulham and I, I needed out. I just wanted to get on with my football career, not the problems of a football club. And, <clears throat> and so Alex Stock came in for me and I learnt the greatest lesson of my life from him. And I carried that to Newcastle and, and it still applies to this very day. Um, and not just for me, but literally for anybody. It, it, it's just that he applied it to football. It can be applied to anything. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and, and Alex Stock, it was, it was on the Friday before the first game of the season. We were in the third division at the time, and uh, we were due to play Barrow the next day at home. Barrow Town. And... Uh, we awaited the team sheet and really none of us had any real idea. One or two senior players would know that, that they'd be going into the side. Mike Keane in particular, the club captain. Um, but nevertheless, there was a lot of us who, who weren't sure. And the team sheet came down, Jimmy Andrews, the coach, he pinned it up and, and we're sort of all looking over 
the heads of those in front and 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 I went down and I and I and I wasn't sort of six or seven or eight or nine and I stretched up a bit and there I was at ten thank heavens for that so I was getting a start right at the beginning of the season and Alex Stockman came into the dressing room and he delivered a speech which just absolutely galvanized me and and he albeit it frightened me stiff at the time um but it but, but as time went on it galvanized me and and he he came in and football managers um they they will not talk about getting success winning things come the end of the season they won't do it it's it's a sort of taboo thing uh and but alex stock did he's the only manager i've known who right from the word go sets the target of what we have to do and achieve and he came in and he and he said um and oh and he he'd been a tank commander in the war in the second world war and and so he was uh, um everything he did was was military style and um and so we had to sit in the dressing room in numerical order all the way ar around from one corner to, to the other and um around the three walls and he came in and he said um he said well he said the good people of luton town they're going to be coming in their droves to watch you play and uh, the least you can do is get them promotion what do you say and we all sort of dutifully nodded. And he said, good, I'm pleased you agree, because now I'm going to tell you how to do it. And I just sat there mesmerised by this. And he said, um, right, he said, we've got 46 games in this third division this season. Um, and he said, uh, um, we cannot afford to lose any more than nine of those 46 games. After that, the wins and the draws will just look after themselves. He said, but now, how are we going to accomplish that feat? He said, well, um, he said, at one end, you defenders, you're going to be working day in, day out, week after week, with coach Jimmy Andrews, keeping you organised and disciplined. And uh, he said, you are not allowed to let in any more than 36 goals in those 46 games this season. And I thought, oh, wow. <laughs> Uh, and then he, then he sort of turned around in the dressing room to face the forward, the, fo the forwards and the midfield players, and he said, um, "Right." And, and uh, whilst at the other end of the pitch, he said, uh, "You have to score a minimum of 82 goals in 46 games." Uh, and uh, he, sa he said, uh, um, "So Jimmy Andrews will look after the goals against with the defenders getting them organized he said but I'm going to tell you where these 82 goals are coming from and he looked he, he then turned back round and he looked at the goalkeeper and he said he said uh, uh, right Tony Reid he said I don't expect you to uh, score any goals but I do expect you to to save at least three penalties right back John Ryan you love an overlap, he said. Uh, you love getting forward, and I've got you down for five. And then he looks at the left back, and he said, Jack Bannister, 
you poo your pants every time you cross the halfway line. But nevertheless, lad, I've got you down for three. Mike Keane at four, skipper of the side. You love a free kick, and I've got you down for ten. And he continued giving everybody a target, six, seven, eight. And then he went to the nine, sat next to me. Ah, Laurie Sheffield, the old man of the side, he said. Um, he said, you've been around a bit, old son, haven't you? But uh, for your age, you can still run a bit, you can still jump a bit. And I've got you down uh, for 18. And I thought, right, if he gives the old fella next to me 18, I'm the young legs, he'll probably give me about 20. And so, yeah, I can get 20 in 46, yeah, I'm sure. Right, no fears, I can get 20. And, and he averted his gaze to me and he just said, McDonald, the new boy, 30. And went straight on to the outside left. <laughs> I nudged Laurie Sheffield under the ribs and I said, Laurie, did I hear him right? Did he give me a total of 30 to get? He said, oh, you heard him all right, boy. Oh, bloody good luck to you. <laughs> <laughs> and I just, I, I just sat there absolutely gobsmacked, thinking, how am I going to get 30 goals in 46 games? Who gets 30 in 46, mm. for heaven's sake? And I'm, and I'm puzzling my, my brain, and I'm scratching my head, and I, and I didn't really hear much of the team talk that went on. I'm just thinking, where the hell's 30 goals coming from? And I've gone home. I didn't really sleep that night. I'm just keep thinking, 30 goals in a season? Who scores 30, for heaven's sake? Anyway, so um, we went out against Barrow and, and we won 3-0. I, I made two goals, but I didn't score. And I've come into the dressing room. Everybody's delighted with a good start to the season. And me, I'm, I'm slumped in the corner in a fit of depression thinking, bloody hell, I've still got 30 to score and I've only got 45 games left now. And that's a goal every one and a half games. Exactly. And I, 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 and I just thought, where the hell are, are they coming from? So uh, the players, they were great. They were terrific. They realised the pressure I was under, and they really worked hard with me in training. And they, um, and uh, and we went to Bournemouth on the following Saturday, and and Mike Keaton. It was nil nil at half time. He and he knocked a ball between the two centre halves. Great pass, and I was on it like a greyhound, and went through, went round the keeper and slid it into the net and the relief, I cannot tell you the relief that I experienced in just those few moments after knocking the ball in the net. I was off of that dreaded figure of 30 and I only had 29 to go and it felt like only 29. And, uh, um, and the, the players were great with me. We won that game 1-0, so we've got two wins in a row and we, so we're off to a bit of a flying start. Um, and, I, and by now, my confidence is rising and rising and rising. And I start knocking goals in. Um, and, and we got to the end of the season. The last game of the season, we were playing away at Mansfield. The situation was 
that if we drew at Mansfield, no matter what any other result happened um, throughout the country, we would be promoted. And so we determined to make sure that they didn't score. If they didn't score, we were promoted. And we just literally played 10 across the penalty area. And we booted it out the ground. It must have been 15 or 16 times, maybe more. And we just made sure that we got that point. We did. It was nil-nil. We're promoted. We, we, were, we finished runners-up to Leighton Orient. And in the dressing room afterwards, the, the directors in, uh, in their absolute generosity sent two bottles of champagne down for all of us to, to, um, <laughs> to share. And so I went over and I put a little bit of champagne in, in two plastic cups. And I've gone over to Alex Stock and I gave him a plastic cup. And, um, and I said, well, here's to you, boss. You told us that we could get promoted and we have. Um, I said, and, uh, and I have an apology to make. I said, I, I didn't get you 30 goals as you asked. I said, I only got 29. He said, well, you see, old son, there are those that can hit it smack on. He said, and then there are those who really go that extra mile and they, and they go over and above what's asked of them. And then there are people like you. And he just walked away. And, and he just demolished me in, this, in that one simple little phrase. And I thought, right. And, and I spent the, the whole summer working out how I was going to get my own back. And we, we, we got to the, to the meeting before the first game of the season. There were a lot of new faces. We were now a division higher. So new players had come in. And Alex Stock, he went through the, the same rigmarole, except we now only have 42 games instead of 46. And I was now the number nine, not the 10. And he's, looked, and, and he's gone round, he's given everybody a total. And he's, and he's gone, ah, McDonald, the not so new boy. Uh, 30, and don't forget you owe me one from last season. So my target that he gave me was 31. And, and this time it wasn't a, a problem. I, that my confidence was riding high. And so I went hammer and tongs for it through the season. And we got to um, Easter and, um, and we stupidly lost to Bristol City on the Good Friday. We lost at home to Gillingham. We lost an unbeaten record of 38 games at, um, at Kenilworth Road uh, against Gillingham of all sides. Um, and those two defeats, that sort of put the kibosh on us getting promoted. And so on the, on the Sunday, because we had a game on the Monday, you know, three games in four days. Can you imagine that happening now? Um, and... Um, and so we, we did light training and then we were going to get hot baths and, and massage and, and, and what have you. And uh, so we were sort of going up the tunnel and Alex Stock came down. And he sort of got hold of my arm, turned me round and walked me out to the centre of the pitch. And looking over his shoulder all around to make sure that we weren't being overheard in an empty stadium. Uh, he, he said, uh, well, old son, uh, promotion's out the window. Um, and that means that a small club like Luton Town, uh, we have to s sell our, uh, our best assets, and that right now is you. 
So you're on your bike, old son. Um, come the end of the season, all you've got to do is keep sticking it in the old onion bag from now until then. And so stick it in the onion bag I did. Oh, and he, but he did say, and I can tell you, there are three clubs interested in you now. He said, there's Man United, there's Chelsea, and there's Newcastle United. Just keep sticking them in the old onion bag. So I did, and, um, and we got to the last game of the season. We were playing Cardiff at home. It was midweek, and we needed to beat Cardiff by two clear goals to go into the Watney Cup instead of them. And it so happens that um, I happened to score a hat-trick, knowing it was my last game at Luton. That I, it was a nice way in which I, um, I was going. And so uh, uh, we beat them 3-0, and we were in the Watney Cup and in the dressing room afterwards there was no champagne this time I got two mugs of tea and I, I took one across to Alex Stock and I gave him the cup of tea and I said um, I said well boss I said um, I said you, uh, uh, I'm afraid that uh, we didn't get promoted uh, as, as you wished and um, I said but um, if if you remember at the beginning of the season, you gave me a target of 30 goals and, and you also wanted the one that I failed to get last season. I said, well, my first goal tonight was the 30th of the season. My second goal, that's the one for last season. I said, and the third, I said, you can have for luck. He says, you're going to be needing some bloody luck where you're going, mate. <laughs> And that was it. <laughs> and he said, come and see me on Friday morning. He said, I'm going to have some serious news for you. So I went on the Friday and, uh, and, and he came in all sort of hot and bothered, having driven back from London um, up the M1. And he came in, he said, I've just been at the Great Northern Hotel by King's Cross Station. He said, the Newcastle party are there for the cup final tomorrow. He said, and I've, uh, I've done the deal with uh, Joe Harvey. And um, he said, uh, and so get down there. He said, go and talk with Joe Harvey. He said, um, and sting him for every penny you can get. I said, right, right you are. So I've got in the car, drove down to the Great Northern Hotel, asked the reception where I could find Joe Harvey and the Newcastle party. And, they, and, and the lassie said, um, just go down that corridor over there and uh, they're in the lounge at the end I said right thanks very much and as I was as I turned into this corridor the door at the far end opened and there was this big uh, um, pair of shoulders that just filled the door frame absolutely filled it and I had recognized um, uh, 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 that uh, that craggy look that uh, that he had even when he was playing and uh, uh, and he came walking up the corridor and I was walking towards him. I put my hand out to shake his hand. And, and I said, uh, I, I said, good morning, Mr. Harvey. I said, uh, my name's Malcolm McDonald. Alex Stock has asked me to come and, um, and, and uh, chat with you. So you're the little bugger, are you? What do you think you're doing scoring a hat-trick in your last game? at Luton, he said. He said, do you know, he said, we had a deal agreed with Luton Town back at Easter for £155,000. 
He said, and you, you go and score a hat-trick in your last game. He said, and your manager comes in here this morning and puts the fee up, £10,000 a goal. He said, so we've now had to agree £185,000. He said, what do you think you were doing? <laughs> and it's the first time I've ever got a bollocking for scoring a hat-trick. <laughs> and it was from <coughs> my new manager, as it were. <coughs> you, you didn't get a bollocking for the next hat-trick. No, I certainly didn't. Which was at home. <laughs> he, he always had that way of... of, of communicating with the fans. His last game in front of his old fans at Luton was a hat-trick. His first game in front of his new fans at home, Liverpool, was a hat-trick as well. And there's no better way to finish and start, is there? Oh, you know, that, that absolutely leave not. them with a memory and and then give them a taste of what's to come. Absolutely. And um, and it, But I must tell you, it, can I go on to the Liverpool game? Um, because... We got beat 2-0 in the first game at Crystal Palace. We got a 0-0 draw at Tottenham. And, and then we faced Liverpool. And uh, so we've, out we've gone. The atmosphere was incredible. You know, I'd known, um, I had known the, uh, the biggest crowd at, at Luton. I think it was a, a, a twelve and a half thousand for a league match. We did actually once get twenty-seven thousand, absolutely full. They were standing on the roofs and all sorts to watch Arsenal in the League Cup. Um, but anyway, um, so here we were in this incredible atmosphere, and uh, uh, um, and so I get. Liverpool were attacking in the, in the early minutes and Emlyn Hughes hit a long shot and in it went. That made it 1-0. And then um, and then, Kevin Keegan, of all people, was back in his own area and he, and he tripped one of the Newcastle players and the referee gave a penalty. Um, uh, and it, it, it's a difficult one to remember who, who that player was. It, uh, in fact, it was David Young whose claim to fame was substitute for Sunderland in the 73 See, Cup final yeah. against Leeds. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I popped the penalty away. Um, that was my first goal for Newcastle. Then, a bit later, um, in, in that first half, um, Terry Hibbett had the ball, and he was getting loads of space out, out on the left and coming into the inside left channel and um, and he just knocked it this absolutely super ball what Terry Hibbett had the ability to do was to play a ball for me for me to use my pace but it enticed the center half to go for it so by the time I reached it it was just in front of, of the center half and I was able just to to dodge round him and he was he was committed so Terry Hibbett used to force the centre-half into a commitment and allow me to beat him. So anyway, I've gone round uh, Larry Lloyd and smacked it into the far top corner. And that's made it 2-1. Crowd's gone wild. And I've run off to the corner flag, but, uh, the, uh, the Galler Gate, uh, and on the popular side. And, um, and, and the players have all come over and said, well done, and then it's time for us to get back into our own half. And as 
as we sort of turned and we started going back up the pitch, the cheering stopped and the singing started. And what what they were singing, because the hit musical in London at, the, at the, that particular time was Jesus Christ Superstar. And, and they started singing that title song, except they changed the words. And, in, and instead of Jesus Christ Superstar, it was Super Max, Superstar, how many goals have you scored so far? Um, which was absolutely amazing. And it was just all around the stadium. And I still can't find the guy who handed out the song sheets. Um, <laughs> but the, uh, uh, and, and we were coming back and I was hearing that. So, you know, and, and it's that moment you, th you, you just know that you've sort of found a, a home for yourself. You know, that it was, that was the, uh, um, that was when everything just sort of opened up for me. And you, you suffered it all that day as well because you went off with a, a bit of a bash in the mouth. Yeah. Well, I've got another one. John Tudor, uh, I must tell you, John Tudor, it was a, so delightful what he did. I don't think people realise that John could be very subtle with little touches of the ball. And it was Terry Hibbert again who knocked the pass into John Tudor. And as the centre-half was about to tackle him, John has just lifted the ball over the centre-half's foot and, he's, and it's just dropped right in my path and I've just gone smack, thank you very much, um, knocked it into the far corner um, and that's made it 3-1. Uh, um, and Ray Clements obviously didn't like people scoring hat-tricks against him, is all I, I suppose I can say, because a bit later um, he duffed a, a goal kick and it came sort of bobbling and bouncing um, uh, uh, towards me and it came past Larry Lloyd, the centre-half. And it's the only time I've ever seen Ray Clements ever miss hit a ball. He was one of the sweetest kickers of a ball ever. Uh, and, and so I've got to control it, it sort of bobbled up um, and gone over Larry Lloyd and I've run and as it, the ball is coming down and down and I've decided to launch myself up and lob the ball over the advancing Ray Clements and as I, I've lobbed it over him and I'm watching the ball and it's coming down, down and it's just gone over the bar and hit the roof of the net on the wrong side. And, and Ray Clements hadn't taken his eyes off of me. He didn't look at the ball. And so he just went smack straight into me and uh, six studs into the, into the uh, left side of my face, knocked all my teeth out and split all my lip up and what have you. And, and I really worked hard to, re to retain consciousness. You know, my, my whole system was just wanting to black out, but I was uh, trying desperately to um, to stay conscious. And um, and in the end, I was sort of carried off with arms over shoulders of Keith Birkinshaw and the physio, Alec Much, and into the treatment room, and I blacked out there. When I came to Frank Clark, because I had a habit that before a game, I would go and have a lie down on the treatment table and, and I'd 
not off for 10 minutes. You know, where others are all getting hyped up, I would go the other way um, and be very relaxed and, uh, uh, and, and even go to sleep for a, for a spell. And, uh, and I woke up and Frank Clark was at the end of this treatment table and I, and I said, oh, Frank, I said, uh, I said, you know, I've just had the strangest of dreams. I've, I've just dreamt I said, that I scored a hat-trick against Liverpool. I hope that happens. He said, it has happened, you silly idiot. <laughs> he said, this is the end of the match, not the beginning. Oh, heavens above, I said, is that right? He said, yeah, yeah. And trying to get the, the pieces of the game back into my memory, it was, it, yeah, it was difficult, but uh, it helped being on... Uh, Tyne's television the next day. I can imagine. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I, I mean, Gibbo debuts. I mean, you've seen plenty of debuts from Newcastle United. Yeah. Kevin Keegan obviously had that famous one where he scored. Yeah. But is Malcolm still the greatest debut in Newcastle United? Do you think? Uh, greatest home debut. Um, yeah, I would think it, it probably is. I mean, when, for example, if you're talking about goal scoring uh, debuts. In front of your own fans, McQuinn got four, but it was again, and Leeds was uh, name opposition, but it was a division down. It was in the second division. It's not quite the same thing. Um, no, but it's still a hell of an achievement. Oh, oh. there's no question yeah. at all about that, but it hasn't mm. got the impact with fans. Also, mm. you've got to remember that Liverpool side was basically the side that went on and won the European Cup three mm. times in no space of time whatsoever. Yeah. So it was on the mm. cusp of being the greatest English side that we'd ever produced in terms of the, the European Cup. There's always, with goal scorers, I find, there's always a moment where if you're a fan, you fall in love with them. And if you're a hack, you think, this is something special. And it's not just the first goal or whatever, it's the quality of the goal. And the second goal there, when Hibby played him in and boom, shot into the top corner, that was an electrifying moment where you get the buzz of the fans and all you, for ages afterwards, the talk say, what did we just see? Wasn't that amazing? And the same thing happened, which Malcolm would probably remember, we, we played a Bolton in the cup. And mm. he, he mm. come in on the wrong peg on a throw-in and smacked it into the top corner against Barry Siddle, the old Sunderland goalkeeper, yeah. right on the stroke of half-time. So that immediately I'm doing a runner um, on the phone back to the office. And so I stay in the press box when the half-time whistle goes and the players troop off. And all I can hear is the buzz around the ground. And with the Bolton fans, what? did we just see there and it is moments like that with strikers the way Milburn scored against Blackpool not talking about debuts just stunning goals in the FA Cup final when he ran from the halfway line mm -hmm. just put it in turned before the ball was passed from because he knew it was in the net mm -hmm. and you look at strikers doing things like that Alan Shearer moments, and you know you're in special company. Um, and at Newcastle, as you know, as we all know, that's extra special because we're a number nine club. So it is it is your calling card. 100%. What was Joe's reaction to you, A, getting that hat trick and B, going off with, a, with a, you know with your face in bits? Because Bob Moncur tells a story where 
he had a broken nose and at full time he goes into the into the changing room and he's got the the doctor and the name escapes us. Um he was Dr. one of the soul killed. Yeah, and one of the directors as well when, when Bob was there. Mm-hmm. And Fenton yeah. Brave, Fenton Brave, 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 that's right, the one, like, yeah. yeah. And he's yeah. literally like pressing his nose up and Joe's like, Oh, it's just a little bit of damage. He can fly, he can cause I think they were playing in Europe, he goes, Oh, he can definitely fly in a couple of days' time that in Braithwood's going, No, no. And Bob's just like sitting there, I'm in I'm in a lot of pain here and, and Joe's just like, Yeah, it doesn't really matter. So I imagine maybe a similar reaction to you. Uh yes. <laughs> um yes, I, I he came into the, he came into the treatment room um, and stood next to Frank and and he's and he and he said uh, he said when you score a hat trick he said you're not allowed to sleep on the job from there <laughs> you know or words to that effect yeah, yeah. you know but he, he never went overboard did Joe in in praise he'd sort of always find a way just to bring you back down to earth mm. so you can get started again straight away and he, he was a tough old guy himself when he's playing days mind he was, yeah, I mean, he? he was yeah. the original i mean he terrified people him mm. and frank brennan who was yeah. known as the rock of gibraltar i'm talking about the 50s cup sides hard hard mm. hard men mm. and um he expected everybody to be Exactly the same. Mm. Yeah. We've got a lovely documentary as well where Gibbo and Supermac are a big part of looking back on Joe's career. So if you just search Joe, Newcastle's greatest ever servant on your podcast provider, that will come up. It's well worth a listen. Uh, Gibbo, I want to ask you, so it's been about 50 years since you first met Malcolm. You saw him getting out of that Rolls Royce. Mm. Um, did you, A, think all these years later he'd still be held in such high regard by the Newcastle United fans. I mean, he's, he, we had a talk in here at the Lanehead where we were recording this Christmas special and it was packed out. And I know you yeah. guys have had gigs over the last few weeks as well. Again, packed out because without inflating your ego, Malcolm, you are loved by the fan base still after mm. all these years. So did you envisage that? I did. Uh, when I saw him play over his years in Newcastle, there's absolutely no question because if you play well for Newcastle, you're a hero for the rest of your life in this city. There's mm. absolutely no question about that. And if you happen to have a number nine in your back, then it's nailed on for good. And you can go right away through from Huey Gallagher uh, to Jackie Milburn to Supermark to Big Alan Shearer and all the this wonderful support cast of, of Les Ferdinand and Andy Cole and um, Wynne Davies, uh, Len White, Albert Stubbins... They will always, always have a place in Newcastle. Seriously, if you go around kids now at Newcastle United, they have heard of Huey Gallagher and he played in the mm. 20s. Mm. But they've heard mm. of him because he was a number nine that scored a pile of goals. And it is that way with Newcastle United fans. You know you're going to be a hero. And as I said to Malcolm, a lot later after he retired and after he'd had his career in management and he went and lived in Milan and he came to stay in my house up at Kingston Park Mm -hmm. and he's looking at his future, what he's got to do and what he will do and he went into broadcasting and was very successful. I said to Malcolm, in my opinion, don't go back to London, you're a cockney, don't go back to London, there's a million famous people, whether they're rock stars, film stars, footballers, they all live in the capital and it would be easy for you to go there because that is basically home. You come up here. If you're up here, 
you are a superstar for life if you've been a number nine. Mm. You can live the rest of your life. You can fly because the air has been lifts you and takes you. And he did that, and it's worked tremendously from... And we are like that. And it's amazing, you know, Malcolm, when you look, the number of top-quality players that come to Newcastle and then either never left or came back uh, once they were free. And I'm thinking of, of, of Bob Monker, and I'm thinking of David Craig, and I'm thinking of Jinky Smith and Malcolm. This area gets a hold of them. Mm. In, uh, the area as Very well true. as... As well as the crowd and as well as the adulation, the area gets a hold of them. Yeah, the people. I yes, think. Yeah, 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 absolutely. The, the absolutely. people of the area do. Maybe you should send a copy of this to Gabby Abonglahor because at the time of recording this, just a couple of days after, yeah. Gabby on Talk Sport said uh, players wouldn't want to move to Newcastle. I mean, Malcolm, you moved yeah. to Newcastle and you're, you're still here all these years later. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I became very pally with um, Frank Clark and, I, and we used to go to lunch together after training through the through the weeks and um i always remember him saying to me he said do you know he said uh, when when joe harvey mooted that uh, that that he had this signing and and who it was frank said to him he'll never come he's a southerner he won't come north and so he said i was that he was um, completely wrong in that um but what what Frank didn't realise, in fact, nobody realised at the time was that um, my father had lived in Blythe for some years and he had worked in the shipyards. He, um, he had been born in Hull and had taken a, a, an apprenticeship as a painter and decorator, but there was no work. It was, it was at, at a time of the Depression and, and uh, there really was no work to be had in, in Hull at all. And, uh, and his eldest sister had married um, a policeman who was based in, at, at the police station in Hull, but had come from Blythe. And, <coughs> and he said to my father, look, who was desperate to find work, desperate, and he said um, that his... That my uncle Bobby said um, that his father was um, was the chief ganger at uh, at the Blythe shipyard. He said he'll find you a, a post there, and so my father went up as a as a ship's painter. And of course, they were building massive, great craft back then in those days, um, and and uh, and he was there until the war broke out, and then he joined the RAF. So he spent almost a decade there, and. And he talked of it. So, as a kid, um, the northeast wasn't just a hidden secret. The seeds had been planted, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it it happened the same way. If you remember, all those years later, with Gavin Peacock, whose granddad had come from South Shields, uh, and 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 who told him about how one and his mm -hmm. granddad bought him when he was about four bought him his first football strip and it was a black and white stripes so that when he <laughs> and, and gavin was an out and out cockney yeah. out and yeah. out cockney but when newcastle come in for him immediately the old roots and he said his granddad was so thrilled that he he come up to newcastle united so it works out we asked for uh, Bonnie, oh, what 
what does he know like about yeah. thing? He also told us, if you remember, how grateful we should be to have an outstanding manager like Steve Bruce. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I would take everything he says with a pinch of salt, really. <laughs> Um, yeah. well, what, what's I, it? I think a large bag of it. <laughs> <laughs> what is it like, Malcolm? I mean, all these years later, when you do get people asking for photographs and autographs, I mean, is it? Does it still take you by? Does it take you by surprise that after all these years, you're still held in such high regard? I, I think that um, I think it's a race of people up here on Tyneside that uh, they have long memories, and and they are very keen to hand it down through the generations. Mm. Um, and, and so, I, up here, um, I'm sort of in the third stage of adult life up here. The first stage is, um, can I please have your autograph? The second stage is, can I have your autograph for my father, please? The third stage of life is, can I have your autograph for my granddad? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, uh, um, and, 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 and rather than be put off from it, I, I warm to it. I warm to that. Um, and, uh, uh, but it just goes to show that it is all handed down. You know, the information, the, um, the memories, the, the, the witnessing of, of certain events, it's all passed down and the youngsters, they, they carry it now. Do, do you think it's passed down because of, you know, you, you not only scored goals, but you put your ball in, you give 100%, you, you, you give everything to the shirt. How important is that? Um, yes, yes, it is important. But when, when you go out, when, when you're a goal scorer, what you do is, um, you don't just score goals, you make people's memories. And they carry that, those memories with them for all their life and they pass them on to the younger generations. Um, and uh, and I, I, that's, that for me is an honor that I can have uh, created those memories in the first place for them and that they still recall, they still want to talk about them um, uh, and uh, 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 and they want to pass it down. They they want to uh, um, make their grandchildren feel a part of what they had seen all those decades ago. I mean that's that's very very true because whereas I sort of grew up with Malcolm professionally in the, his time in the seventies, etc. etc. So it was a different relationship. I'd been starry eyed about Jackie Milburn. Um, and my memories were created a centre forward like Mal in Malcolm's mode very very quick lethal finisher scores pile of goals and he had I was a little lad at the time and he had made such an impression on me and they say never meet your hero because you can never live up to especially if you're a little lad to this starry eyed impression you have and I, I got to know Jackie ever so well because he was a press man when I first went to cover mm -hmm. the castle. He's sitting in the press box and I wrote four books with him and I organised This Is Your Life behind the scenes when he did This Is Your Life. And all my memories were treasured from Jackie Milburn and from Jackie Milburn I was able to refresh them through 
Malcolm McDonald through Alan Shearer, etc., etc. Mm. Not so much through Joe Linton, but with the others, I was able to refresh. <laughs> but, uh, but, but Jackie was such a lovely guy. Oh, that, yeah. That, Magnificent. That, yes, and, and that, uh, um, that in itself would have been a, a treasured memory. No question, um, no question. And he, uh, as you well know, because you got to know him well, Malcolm, he was sort of almost embarrassed by fame. Yes. Uh, and yeah, he, was he was shy. And, you know, when people would say to him, oh, you know, I, I saw you and you, you're wonderful and all, you could see him uncomfortable within mm. his own skin because yeah. he, and he never knew quite how to handle that and what to say mm. in response to it. Uh, and he was willing to help absolutely anybody. Uh, that embarrassment that, that he had about his fame came out when... We, I'd written a book with him, and it came out, and for some reason, this is your life in London, the office got in touch with me and said, Jackie's back in the public eye because of this book, etc., etc., we would like to get him for This Is Your Life. What do you think? And I said, well, hey, he's absolutely, you know, he doesn't want to know, he's a Geordie, he'll not come, you'll never get him down to London, they take you down there on the excuse of something, then they come out with a book, this is your life and you're shocked I says you'll never get Jack down to, to London and Lorna who I, Laura, who I saw his wife confirmed that and we're all doing this behind Jackie's back for the first time ever this is your life with Eamon Andrews came up to Tainty's television and recorded the program outside of their own offices and oh, they had really? the ex yeah the first oh, time it had ever happened and yeah. we we used the excuse, and I've got the tickets at home to this day. Tickets were printed that there was going to be um, a programme made by Tyne Tees about the book on the history of Newcastle United done by Jackie and myself. And the tickets were printed for fans, and the fans thought they were going mm -hmm. for that. Right. And um, Jack said, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, okay. I'll I had to persuade them a little bit then, like, even yeah, to, to yes. go down there. And I... I was then asked to spend the whole day with him to keep him out the way while I had rehearsals mm. in the mm. studio, including all his family and everything. And I had a, I've plotted the whole day where we would go up and talk to Arthur Cox in his office, who was the Newcastle manager at the time, about the book. I mean, the, the book was dominated the whole day and it was absolutely nothing to do with it. And then I had a con Jackie into saying that my missus was out of town and what would I do over lunchtime? And could mm -hmm. I then leave him because he'd go look for Laura who was in the studios. So I almost had to beg him to take us for lunch and he took us in his house and we took us for lunch in his house and he tried to uh, fry an egg and he burnt, nearly burnt the house <laughs> down. It was absolute chaos. And we got down to London. We got, sorry, we got down into the studio and out he came with the book, Eamon Andrews, This Is Your Life. And he said to me afterwards, Jack, he said, Gibbo, if I'd known anything about that, I would never have done it. Yeah. But I'm yeah. all thrilled to bits that yeah. I did do it. Because Bobby and Jackie Charlton, who were then still good friends with each mm. other, came out together to introduce and they brought Bert Troutman, the goalkeeper of Manchester City, mm. who he scored against in 42 seconds at 55 Cup Final. They flew him in for Pakistan, to meet him, etc., etc., and it was one of the wonderful, wonderful occasions. And for me, I still see him through starry eyes. I see Malcolm as a dear, dear friend, and I see Jackie as with starry eyes. Mm, very fortunate to be, you know, as close to these people. And oh. I mean, again, we've we've talked about there what you saw. 
for Malcolm's career when he joined Newcastle and over the seasons. Yeah. But, I mean, you guys are really good friends as well. I mean, I bet you didn't... Yeah. Did you envisage that when he first joined? Well, you, you just don't know how... Because you can admire players, uh, and I've done throughout the years, but not particularly like them as people. But you, you admire the talent. And then I've adored some players uh, as people, but unfortunately they couldn't play. Now, when you can get the combination of them both, it is absolutely brilliantly. And we've had that over... Well, Malcolm was 21 when I first got to know him, and he's 36 now, so I've known him for <laughs> an awful long time. We've been great, great wow. friends all of that time. Yeah. Um, Half a century, John. It, aye, it is, it is. Yeah. And uh. I just see... I mean, you see two guys sitting on here of a, of a certain age and have grey hair under this. Now, <laughs> I, I see a guy with a beetle cut and, and a, a bloke who's the fastest thing I've ever seen on two legs. And we're still, this, in my eyes, we're still the same today as we were then. Yes. Um, and that's mm. definition mm. of long friendships. And then when you're lucky enough to get that within your professional life, and I've done it with two or three people, but probably that's all I've, I'm friends with loads but really really close it is extra special um, uh, and it is because inevitably when you've got a goal scorer like this there's no minuses because you don't get relegated if a fella's scoring between 25 and 35 goals a season you don't go down mm -hmm. so all the memories are happy memories you talked about goals Supermac what is your favourite Newcastle United goal that you scored? Um, probably against Leicester, um, and and it, when you think now, every kick of the ball in the Premiership is is televised, and and it's and it's recorded for posterity. Mm. Whereas when when I was playing for Newcastle, <coughs> the um, Tynes Television would they had they had to by the Football League rules, they had to give as much. Um, time to Darlington and Hartlepool as they gave to Newcastle and so uh, we, it was sort of like one game in six would appear on on Tyne T's television um, and Leicester wasn't televised uh, the, so you had, to, you had to be there to see what happened well and what did happen was that Leicester had a corner and I went back and, and was on the goal line um, marking the near post player. <clears throat> and, and the ball was swung in. And I think it was Paddy Howard has got his head to it. And Irving Natris, of all people, got onto the, got onto the ball. <clears throat> and he just started running. And he was quick, Irving. Good runner. Great athlete. And he was going through the inside right channel. And I just set off straight through the middle of the pitch. <coughs> oh, excuse me. Um, and he was about 12 yards ahead of me. And I'm going like a steam train through the middle of the pitch. And it finished up that we'd left all the Leicester players behind, except for, for two. That was the goalkeeper between the sticks. And John Samuels, who, who had been back on the halfway line, midfield player, and he's 
caught in the position of does he close Irving Natris down and leave me free to run? <coughs> or So in the end, he tried to be clever and sort of got in between. Like the, 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 yeah, and trying to jockey the situation. But what he didn't know was that Irving, um, he, he was sort of of the frame of mind that he loved playing in his own half. And he looked an absolute force to be reckoned with. As soon as he crossed the halfway line, he thought it was full of crocodiles, I'm sure, because he went there so rarely. And when he did, he'd get rid of the ball quite quickly. So I knew that he was going to get rid of the ball. It was what he did with it um, that I was just hoping and praying that it, he'd realise I was coming up his left-hand side. And sure enough, Irving, having gone about five or six yards into the Leicester half, he's just knocked the ball across. And I am steaming through the middle. And it just so happened that Ball and me met absolutely perfectly and and I thought I'm just going to hit this and I woof and I let go with my left foot and it just screamed um, I can't say it, it, it went into the top corner it didn't because it was only five foot high when it actually hit the net but the keeper couldn't get anywhere near it and it was paced out at a, uh, they reckoned it was around about 38 yards maybe a bit more they never knew for sure um, but uh, uh, it was, I, but I do remember as I as I was coming onto the ball, um, I, there was a sort of uh, um, I, there was there was this noise of intake of breath, <gasps> and and then as my foot came back, it was oh he's not going to shoot surely from there. You know, there was that sort of mumbling all ar all around the ground, and then I sh and and I did shoot. It was just silence. The ball has hit the back of the net, dropped to the ground, and and I put my hand in the air, and then the roar started. But I think that there was that silence for so long. People just didn't real they they didn't believe what they had just witnessed. And and for you, Gibble. Well, I mean, I, I was there that day. Funny enough, I've met 80,000 Newcastle fans who were there that day. Yes. In the <laughs> it's I, true. In fact, I don't know any Newcastle fan of that age who wasn't at the game. Because they oh, yeah, Mount McDonald against Esther. Yeah, what a yeah. goal that was. Yeah, yeah. Uh, everybody seems to have seen it. Um, and it was extra, extra special. But, you know, just off the top of my head, Andrew, when you, you think of all the goals... The great goals Malton scored for Newcastle. The second one on his home debut against Liverpool. The one against Bolton when he, he took the, the throw-in, swivelled on his other foot and put it in the top corner. The two contrasting goals, Burnley in the, in the semi-final. You can go on and on and on as you can with great goal scorers because they often score great goals as well. Um, and so there's an awful lot. And in some ways, you, you judge them in different ways. That is probably the sweetest strike. If mm. you want to go on drama, you may take Liverpool because it's the first impression. The, his first goal was a penalty. The second, 
wow. So it was the first seeing of what you were going to see regularly. You can then go to the semi-final of the cup with two Burnley and say on importance, you can't get more important than that was because it took with the Wembley. Um, so there's a load of, of, of different times. Um, and then again, without thinking of one goal, for example, with Malcolm, I was sitting in Wembley when he scored five against Cyprus. So they, they, that sticks out in your memory. There's so many memories on goals, and that's what's wonderful about good goal scorers. There's a lot of goals you can pick out. You could do that with Alan Shearer. You could do that with Jackie Melbourne. Yeah, and th there is an art to goal scoring, and it all starts with never being afraid to miss. Because if you're going to score goals, you have to miss. You're going to miss. You're going to miss loads. So you, you, you let that just be a part of your life that you're going to miss. And, and that allows the creation of the confidence just to literally shoot from anywhere. Um, you watch so many players now, they get a shooting opportunity, but they don't take it and they pass. They don't they, want to miss, do they? They, they don't, don't want, want to miss. To miss. They don't want to have that responsibility. But the likes of Alan Shearer, um, Pop Robson was yeah. another yeah. Um, yeah. who preceded me, um, uh, and, so, and so on and so forth. There's so many of them. They were never afraid to miss, and that's absolutely key in scoring goals. Accept you have to miss, so keep shooting. So many uh, great memories you both mentioned there. And time is against us. If you're listening to this on Christmas Day, your turkey must be just about done. So if you do want to hear about the FA Cup final, which Newcastle unfortunately lost to Liverpool, click on that documentary I mentioned earlier about Joe Harvey in which Sutmak describes the emotion and what happened in that game really, really nicely. So I do recommend you, you catch up with that. Uh, Sutmak, I want to get on to your exit from Newcastle and the rival of, of Gordon Lee. What do you... Uh, what do you remember about that? Um, this is a Christmas day. We're supposed to be happy, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, he, he, Gordon Lee came in. And the first I knew of it, I, I was actually over in South Africa in Johannesburg um, playing for a side called Lusitano over there. And because I, I didn't like um, having long breaks through the summer. And so I wanted to keep playing and uh, keep myself fit. And, um, and I, I, we had training that evening, and so I was just having a bit of a rest in my room in the afternoon, and the phone rang, and I picked it up, and, I, and, uh, and, I, and a familiar voice said, uh, hello, Mal, Gibbo here. And so John was calling me over in South Africa, and he says, um, I've got some news for you. I said, oh, yeah, what's that, John? He said, well, they've appointed the new man. I said, oh, really? I said, oh, go on, do, tell me. Um, he said, uh, uh, um, well, they've, uh, they've appointed um, a fellow called Gordon Lee. I said, Gordon, who? I'd never heard of him. And the headline on the back page of the Evening Chronicle that evening in the biggest capital, black capital letters you have ever witnessed was Gordon who, question mark, and underneath in smaller letters uh, says, says Super Mac from Johannesburg. 
<laughs> yes, thanks, John. <laughs> but you so, did say good. <laughs> I, I did, I did, yeah. And and I'm and I'm still saying it. <laughs> yes. Uh, um, and and so uh, I, I got back um, from South Africa about a week before uh, we were due to, to uh, return for pre-season training. And so I thought I'd drive in to the ground and just introduce myself to Gordon Lee and what have you. And I've been looking at the, at the Evening Chronicle and catching up on information and what have you. Uh, and, and so Gordon Lee and his number two, Richard Dinnis. And I can, I, I, I'm not the best with names at times. And so I've driven into St. James Park, parked the car, gone up the steps, and just as I'm walking across to the main entrance, it's opened and out has come the coach. And, and, I've, and I've gone up and I've shook it. I said, I'm Malcolm McDonald. Uh, you must be Dennis Richards. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that didn't get me off on the brightest of starts and then I've gone on through knocked on the manager's office door and there was a come in so I've gone in I said uh, I'm Malcolm McDonald I, I thought I'd just pop in and uh, introduce myself and welcome you to the club tell me about Terry Hibbett I hear he's a troublemaker I said all you need to know about Terry Hibbett is he is an absolute genius passer of the ball. I said he's got one of the best left pegs in the world of football. Um, I said, and uh, and he knows when to, when to knock it. I said, and he's made me many, many goals. That's all you need to know. Um, and I thought, oh dear, there's trouble. If that if they're the first words that come out of his mouth, uh, then um, there's going to be trouble, and there was later on, and um, uh, and he really did the stinkiest, dirtiest um, thing on Terry Hibbert and got him out of the club. I was absolutely appalled, and when it happened, and it was done in such horrible fashion, horrible, and uh, and having witnessed it, I thought I can't stay at this club. I can't be anywhere near that man um, because if he can do that to Terry Hibbert, super, superb player, uh, and, and it doesn't matter what kind of personality he yeah. is, it's what he does out in the, out in the field. You know, um, if I can just go back a year or so, um, I remember we were on the bus coming back from Hillsborough just having beaten Burnley in the semi-final. And for the first time, I had, I had suggested that my agent come up from London. I, I was the only one in the... Uh, agents were, were hardly known in the game. Um, but I had an agent who was highly respected in Fleet Street and, and in the world of sport generally, particularly cricket. His name was Reg Hater, and he had a press agency just off of Fleet, Fleet Street. And, <coughs> and so Reg came up and sort of got to know the players and uh, um, and was sort of coming up with ideas and what have you, and and it was all a new world to all the other guys, um, and um, and so he got on the bus to go back to Newcastle with us, and 
He said, look, I want to get to know all of you on the way back. He said, but first, I must go and talk with Joe Harvey. So he went and sat in the front. And he was there for about 20 minutes. And he came back. I said, oh, you're back quick. He said, yeah. He said, um, he, he said it, yeah, it was quite interesting. I said, oh, really? He said, yeah. He said, um, he said, I just wanted to sort of get a manager's view of each of, the, of you players. And... Um, he said, so I, I said to um, Joe, he said, uh, tell me about uh, William McFall, your goalkeeper. Bloody good goalkeeper. He's a bloody good, safe pair of hands, is Willie. Ah, right, says Reg. Um, and David Craig, right back. Bloody good player. Bloody gets forward well. Defends really tight. He said, stops crosses from getting in. Bloody good player. Oh, right. And um, Frank Clark, best defender in the country. He said, bloody good left back. And so, uh, finally, Reg, he said, um, well, he said, all, I, all I've discovered um, about all of you is that you're all bloody good players. <laughs> <laughs> and that was Joe. That was Joe. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, that, that was how Joe saw things. But um, I thought his sacking was, was dreadfully cruel dreadfully cruel um, uh, and wrong but anyway and so Gordon Lee he came in and uh, I finished up I just had no time for them the man. funny thing with Gordon looking at from the outside and I fell out with him big time because he knew I was a friend of Malcolm's and um, you know he took out on me his frustration that he had with Malcolm I mean I was sat in the the uh, his office after a game one day and he's complaining to me about Malcolm not marking up on a corner we were defending and Malcolm used to go on the halfway line because that dragged three defenders back on the halfway line mm. because of his pace they were terrified he didn't leave him on his own or two against one so you got three which meant we weren't so congested and the defenders mm. could get on with doing the defensive job. Yeah, um, absolutely. But he said to me, uh, oh, yeah, you know, that, that's what you should have. Your centre forward should come back and be marking and all this, etc." And I said, well, wait a minute. I said, you never saw Jimmy Greaves, who's the greatest goal scorer I've ever seen in my life, mm. marking up at corners defended by Chelsea or Spurs. And he said, I wouldn't have Jimmy Greaves in my team. Mm. So I got up immediately and said, Gordon, I would just like to say that I'm now going to go home and cry myself to sleep because I, I know Newcastle United will never sign Jimmy Greaves. I said, you honestly believe that? I honestly believe something else. It's about time we called it a day. And he just didn't like big stars. He sold Malcolm McDonald in Newcastle. I haven't got rid of Terry, but he went to Everton right off the back of Newcastle, which was bad, bad news, and he got rid of Duncan McKenzie because Duncan McKenzie mm. was the big star centre-forward at Everton. Now, mm. you can point to limited success at Newcastle, like they finished fifth top of the league. He'd gone by then, but Dennis just kept the ball rolling, didn't interfere, and that got with the fifth top, and we played in the League Cup final. But... If you are going to, at a club like Newcastle, with their fans, get rid of the man that makes the goals, Hibbert, and then the man that scores the goals, MacDonald, you've got to go stay put and see the job through and say, I was right to do it because I've built this great side. Yeah. If you leave straight afterwards, 
it, it's unforgivable, and that's what he did. Would you have stayed, Malcolm, if all had been well, and you know, if someone, if Joe had stayed, or someone better had come in, better to your liking, would you think you would have stayed for the rest of your career? Yeah, if Gordon Lee hadn't have gone to Newcastle, I, I could see myself staying there. Yeah, without any shadow of a doubt. Um, he, he, uh, he, um, he, he, he tried playing me in midfield, and. And, and it was all in such negative fashion, trying to stop me from scoring goals. Which manager have you ever heard of has actually tried to stop one of his own players from scoring goals? It was bizarre, the whole situation. And I realised very early from his arrival, very early to his arrival, that, uh, that I wasn't going to last very long. Um, and then what he did to Terry Hibbert, that just absolutely convinced me. Um, and uh, it, it, uh, um, he, I remember he came and stood right in front of me um, in the dressing room and he said, uh, I've just signed a player who's going to score more goals than you. And I said, he doesn't exist. <laughs> And Gordon Lee went livid, so he played me in midfield. I, I remember the guy that he brought in, Alan Gowling, uh, coming <coughs> to Newcastle and played up front. And um, he was a big gangly, um, he didn't look the part, but he was big hearted. And I'm not going to have a go down. But I always remember going to Stoke and being in a press conference immediately after the game of Stoke with a lot of national papers and the Stoke guys. And he start waxing lyrical about my centre forward without naming the guy, you know. And my centre forward, I think he did well today, and, he, and he's good enough to play for England. And all taking this down, and I'm looking at the national papers, and I'm thinking they think he's talking about Malcolm McDonald, and I knew he was talking about Alan Dowling. Yeah. Because yeah. and it was only right at the death as he as he went out, he said, "Well, and anyway, Alan Dowling might have scored today, but he will." And they, and he went out the door and everybody went, what did he say there about Alan? <laughs> I said, he's talking about Alan Gowland when he's talking about his centre forward playing for England. He wasn't talking about Malcolm McDonald. Um, but he, he got that bee in the bonnet. But mm. what I found unforgivable as a Newcastle fan myself and as a Geordie is if you're going to get rid of the best, you don't take your toes and get out immediately yeah. afterwards. You just you stick it out for done. a long while. Yeah, yes. just absolutely. Or you leave well alone and you get out. Yeah, you know it, it, that was horrendous. So you ended up off to Arsenal, and what we're going to do, because like I say, we're just running a little bit out of time. We're going to fly forward to the late eighties, um, and, and we're going to talk about Miradina because. Nice. He is another well-loved character, and what many people might not know is that both you guys, Malcolm, had a, had a role in bringing him to Newcastle. So, John, do you want to set up the story? Yeah, for yeah a very significant role. I thought it was a terrific story because it was a Newcastle number nine legend signing a Brazilian number nine for his old club, Newcastle United. And it was quite amazing because... Um, Mirror turned out to be the first Brazilian ever to play in the Football League as it was then. There wasn't mm -hmm. a Premier League. In the history of the Football League, which was over 100 years old. So it was a massive, massive story in its own right. Mirror had just played centre-forward for Brazil at Wembley against England yeah. and scored the winning goal. Uh, so he was very much in 
the public eye. He was a Brazilian, for goodness sake. You know what that means. Newcastle United were in desperate straits at the time because they had stupidly and ridiculously sold three of the greatest Geordie talents we're ever going to have. In, um, well, in sorry, they'd begun selling them. They hadn't got rid of Beardsley by this time, but they'd begun selling him, which started with Waddle, Waddle. Beardsley and then went to Gascoigne. Hadn't got yeah. that far, but they were on that slippery road. Willie McFall was, was now the manager. He needed a desperate lift, and unbelievably, and I'll let Malcolm tell a tale about how it come across, <clears> but <throat> Malcolm come up with the idea that, would you like this guy? Now, being a friend, Malcolm filled me in. You know, there's, I've got this centre forward, Mirandina, Brazil number nine, all the history of Brazil, Pele and all that. And I'm going to offer him to Willie McFall, who's his old mate, of course. And I'm thinking to myself, it's a good story, but I'm thinking early doors, you know, it's a good story, but it's fantasy island. Like, we are going to sign them. There's never been a Brazilian in the Football League. We are going to sign him, and number nine's going to get number nine and sell him to one of his best mates, Willie McFord. Nah, this isn't good. And the, but the more it went on, the more apparent it became that it was going to happen. And eventually, when Mirror did sign, he had to come all the way from South America to Newcastle, he come via Paris into London. I flew down to London to get on the plane with him up to Newcastle and flew back with him to Newcastle, went into a city centre hotel and outside the hotel there was two flags flying and one was Union Jack and one was the Brazilian flag to welcome <laughs> Mirror to, to Newcastle. And... Um, you know, he was here for two years, but uh, the way he came about in Malcolm's involvement was quite staggering, really. It, it certainly was. Uh, I, I was, um, I, I had a, a pub down on the Worthing, um, down in Worthing on the south coast, and it was, uh, um, by heavens, it was a really, really busy uh, thing. And, uh, and one lunchtime, with a good name, by the way, Far mm -hmm. Post. The Far Post, I good, good name, because yeah. that, that's where Malcolm used to live when he was at Newcastle. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it was a, good much. Yeah. was a good name. On the Far Post. Um, and, and a guy came in, and, and, and we were sort of quietening down after the lunch period. Um, and he, he, said, um, he said, could I have a little talk with you? I said, yeah, what about? He said, well, he said, I, I don't really know anything about football, but, he said, I know a Brazilian lad, um, son of a lawyer, he said, he, he came over here to study and, and lived with me in, in digs. And, and then he went back to Brazil. His big mate is a fella called Mirandinha, who plays... Um, I forget now. Palmeiras. Palmeiras. Palmeiras, that's it. Thanks. He said he plays for Palmeiras, which was a, a big um, side at the time over there. And I said, yeah. And he said, well, they're interested in, in bringing him over and signing for a European club. Ah, I said, right. And I, I was... Oh, um, I was very doubtful on the whole thing. So I started to seriously check it out 
in in all sorts of ways and I found that this fella was telling the absolute truth and so I said okay well um, I need I need to, to speak with somebody from over there um, and I prefer it face to face so Mirandina's mate he came over the, the, um, the guy who was the ex-student and um, and so talked with him and sure enough it was it was all pretty genuine and <laughs> and so I I I then looked at video film that the fella had brought and I thought whoa he's quick he can he can shoot uh, he can run like the wind and so it all sort of all good well and um, and so with these videos uh, I started to sort of put it about and um, and I phoned Graham Souness I knew Graham well so I phoned Graham Souness who was at the time the manager at Rangers and he saw the videos he got further stuff and looked and said I want him and so we continued um, and it finished up that Hello? Graham Souness was was ready to do the deal and his chairman sacked him <laughs> I think yeah. it was David Murray yes yes yeah who, who, who was the chairman of, of Rangers. And, and Graham Souness got sacked, and we were on the verge of, of putting all this deal together. Um, so I had to sort of start all over again. And, and I happened to... I, I know Newcastle, so uh, they, I knew they were in need of goals. And so I put it to Willie McFall. And this was at the time when he was about to play at Wembley. And so William McFall and a couple of directors went down to Wembley, watched the game and said, we want him. Scored the goal. Yeah. And, and, and so um, it finished up. We got the deal done. Not quickly, but it got done. Um, and, uh, uh, and everybody got paid. Thank you very much. Um, and uh, it was just unfortunate I think that Mirandinia uh, he let Newcastle down um, in the way that he just uh, nipped off back to Brazil um, uh, not good not good but um, so uh, but um, but Newcastle had to live with that I'm afraid but uh, it was it was interesting to say the least and I and um, and I suppose one of the first agent-led deals mm -hmm. that happened in this country. The incredible thing we remember in two years of Mirandina, um, he played with Gaza and you needed two footballs on the pitch. Yeah. Because Gaza always used to complain that Mirandina wouldn't, uh, wouldn't pass to him because his second touch was a shot. He tried to get down with the first touch and shoot with the second touch. He never passed mm -hmm. it on. And of course then... Mirror, uh, Gaza was the same way with him, so Newcastle needed two. But within about four days of him signing Mirror for Newcastle, 
incredible when I look back. Bear in mind at this stage, Gaza is just a, a Ben. He's a very, very young lad. The superstar hadn't quite happened yet. You knew he was going to be, but he wasn't at that stage. And I went up and did a talking at Ponteeland, in a social club at Ponteeland, because everybody wanted to see Mirandina. And I thought, uh, I can't just handle him myself, because on his own, because he could hardly speak, he, he was... He didn't know the lingo. Mm. So I took Gaza with him, who was a little upstart, that there was cockney and cocky about it, etc. And reckoned I was on stage working with two footballers, neither of which could speak English because <laughs> neither could, could yeah. Gaza. Yeah. He just spoke Geordie. But um, uh, they were hilarious together. And um, the interesting thing with Murray, he, he then went away and... Uh, he stayed in touch. I've, I saw him on a couple of occasions. He come back, and just about three months ago, he got in touch yet again through Lee Payne, who, who become a bit of a friend of his. He was a, a winger at Newcastle very fleetingly. He, he played about ten first team games mm. at Newcastle. He, we got him from Luton, and uh, he then played for me at Gateshead amazingly for a short while when I was when I owned Gateshead, and he's friendly with him. And Mirror got in touch, and um, I sent some stuff across. He's just produced his autobiography, which I'm, I'm certain is a fabulous read. And he said to me, Gibbo, I'll send, he still speaks broken English, I'll send you a copy of it so you can have a read. And he sends us a copy, and of course it's all in their language, not ours, so I've got no idea. Yeah. But on well, and that was, that was a problem that I've, yeah. that I've faced. Language. Um, yes, because um, uh, uh, over in Brazil, they speak Portuguese. But, and there is a massive great but, I got, I got the transfer contract and what have you and, and, the, and the various contracts that were, were required. I, I sent them to the Portuguese embassy and got them all translated at great cost. Um, and back they came and I put them in front of the Brazilian people who were involved and they just scratched their head and went, what don't understand say? any yeah what does it say <coughs> the the brazilian portuguese that's um that's become a modern style of language yeah the um the the the, the um it's, it's, uh, the, the portuguese brazilian yeah or yeah mm -hmm. um it's a different it's strain very, isn't it very, uh, sorry the portuguese language is very old-fashioned it's sort of, they speak somewhat similar to, to back in the 17th century. And Brazil is a very modern country in its language. And, and, and it, it just doesn't marry together at all. You know, well, I wasn't to know, uh, but I found out. So we had to, we then had to get all, all the contracts and everything else um, all translated yet again. Um, by a, a Brazilian language agency. Well, the only way, the only way I knew that I was in the book, I would say all this Portuguese, and then would say John Gibson, and then would continue. <laughs> now he could have said I was an absolute swine, or it was the yeah. best thing it ever happened yeah. to. But he says I'll I'll send you a copy so you can read it and see. And uh, so if there's any Portuguese-speaking people who want a copy of Mundina's book, they can get in touch with me. Yeah, well, maybe do a giveaway. I mean, that is a fantastic story, Martin, to be involved in that. And one, like I say, many people may not realise, you may have heard in the background there there's little bits of noises because the pub we're recording is just about to open. So we're going to wrap up now. Malcolm, I just want to finish with you. 
uh, I want you to tell our listeners what Newcastle United fans mean to you. We've spoken about what the club means, but what does the fan base mean? Well, I, I'm a person, I've always had time for people, and I think that's important. Um, and um, w- w- with, with Newcastle fans, that they, uh, they have such a, an overwhelming and powerful desire to uh, to be in love with their football club, to be in love with their players, and and then to even meet them and what have you, you know, talkings and what have you that John was mentioning. They, um, all of that is so important. Um, uh, I cannot abide players who ignore fans and jump into their car and just disappear. Um, that because I remember when I was a lad, I saw my first game at Fulham when I was four. Uh, when I was eight, I went to the bus stop. I had a new autograph book. I wanted the autographs. All of the players, they spent time with me. I was walking along with them as they were going from the bus stop to the, to the ground for training, and they'd all chat away to me. And I, uh, I just loved it. Um, and later, Bobby Robson got off the bus and... Uh, well, he just gave me a football lesson all the way from the bus stop to the to the gate, and uh, um, and 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 I think that that's important that footballers give time to people um, and 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 take interest in them as supporters. Um, I, I always have done, and I was always happy to go out um, to you know to, uh, at nights and what have you. Um, to enjoy the nightlife and and the company of of supporters when I was playing here. Um, And apart from anything, there is incredible humour. I absolutely adore the humour that's on Tyneside and and football supporters have have got it in spades. So, uh, yeah, and um, I've... I've I've had a lot of um, of very memorable um, moments and evenings and days and what have you uh, because of it. Uh, because in all honesty, every single Newcastle supporter really is a good friend of mine, and that's how I I will always treat them. Mm, lovely. And all that's left for us to do is to wish everyone a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Indeed we do. Merry Christmas to you all. I hope you've enjoyed the show. And we will see you in the new year and keep it going because, as I always say, we will keep the faith on Geordie Land. We certainly will, yes. Uh, uh, Merry Christmas. I know what everybody wants in their stocking and that's about, and that's about 36 points at least. <laughs> <laughs> so I wish that all of us can... Uh, can experience those 36 points before the season ends. Fingers crossed. And to you guys listening, thank you for supporting us for the last year. Thank you for everyone who subscribed and followed and listened and downloaded. Please continue to do so through 2022. And as Supermark and Gibbo have both said there, we wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. <laughs>